Tonight, from long COVID to Lyme disease, millions of Americans suffer from chronic illnesses that are poorly understood even by doctors. Megan O'Rourke, author of the New York Times best-selling book, The Invisible Kingdom, shares her story and offers hope to those struck by mysterious diseases. Metrofocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philomen M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin, the JPB Foundation. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. For the untold millions of Americans living with a chronic illness, the experience can be scary, frustrating, and intensely isolating. The same goes for those who suffer from illnesses that are poorly understood or difficult to diagnose and treat, such as Lyme disease or a whole host of other autoimmune diseases. Today, the emergence of long COVID means more and more Americans are grappling with what it means to live with chronic illness. Author and journalist and poet Megan O'Rourke knows these feelings from personal experience. She has been living with chronic illness for most of her adult life. In her book, The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness, O'Rourke writes about that experience. She also investigates the history of hard to understand medical conditions and describes how society can better understand those who suffer from them. The book is a New York Times bestseller, and Megan O'Rourke joins us on the show now. Megan, welcome to Metro Focus. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a, a great pleasure to be here. So as I mentioned in the intro, you, of course, have a personal uh, experience with this. So I'm wondering if you could just sort of set the groundwork for the audience so we understand where you're coming from. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard to tell my story succinctly because, as you say, it, it went over most of my adult life, but the way I tend to describe it is that I got sick the way that Hemingway says you go broke gradually and then suddenly. So I had a host of small things going wrong in my twenties. Um, and I would see the doctors and say, I'm strangely fatigued. I had a lot of brain fog. I had hives every day for a year. I had really drenching night sweats, which is quite unusual for a 20 year old, but it wasn't until my thirties, um, that I got a virus and then just really never recovered from it. And I had a constellation of symptoms that are often called vague or subjective because they're hard to measure with our current systems that so we're getting better at measuring and looking at some of these. And these were symptoms like brain fog. Um, it felt like my head was full of molasses. It was hard to recall words, which is a problem if you're a writer, um, fatigue, joint pain, and, and more. Um, and eventually I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease with tick-borne illness that had gone missed and with a genetic condition known as Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which can make some of those infections harder to live with and harder to treat. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting uh, that you sort of 
mention your experience because on Metro Focus, we've spoken a lot about uh, some of the challenges that the medical industry still deals with. Um, Things like, you know, sexism within the industry between doctors and patients, medical racism, all of those other things. So I'm wondering, not only from your experience, but from the research that you also did, what were you able to uncover that might give some understanding as to why some people go undiagnosed for so long? Yeah, so this became the the really, sorry, this, I have a visitor in the room at the moment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this became the question that drove me and really animated my, the, the reason, it was the reason I wrote the book, right? Which is mm-hmm. in this diagnostic age where it's so actually quite easy to get diagnoses for a whole array of things, right? We almost worry that we pathologize too much or medicalize too much. Why was it that not only I, but so many other Americans were having a hard time getting a diagnosis? Um, And basically, I had begun reporting and reading about these conditions and found that I was really not alone. Tons of other people were finding it hard to get a diagnosis, finding themselves dismissed by doctors. Um, I interviewed about 100 people for the book. And I think it was something like 95 of them had been told along the way before receiving a really clear cut medical diagnosis that they were hypochondriacs or suffering from anxiety. So what my research showed is what in a sense, many of us know intuitively, but basically, first of all, medicine has what I call a woman problem in the book. It tends to distrust women's testimony and to dismiss women when they speak about problems in their body. And we can trace that history all the way back to Freud and hysteria, the the kind of rise of the epidemic of the diagnosis of hysteria in the 19th century, when women who were suffering from vague symptoms were often seen as having a psychological problem that explicitly was framed as, um, you know, when you're experiencing psychic stress and you don't know how to handle it, it shows up in bodily ailments, right? So we have this underlying underlying idea there. Then two, racism, systemic racism, we can see in studies is showing that doctors tend not to trust and treat many people of color, right? There's a lot of really good literature looking at disparities in treatment um, based on based on race. But the underlying all of this, the problem for the kinds of diseases I'm talking about and the problem facing us now in this epidemic of long COVID that's, that's coming is that um, med- modern medicine is built on measuring things, right? It's built on, you go in, you get lab work, you get an X-ray, you get an MRI, and we can really see what the problem is. And we know based on evidence and studies what to do and how to fix it, right? And this is a huge positive, right? It's brought us better health, evidence-based medicine, you know, fewer treatments that you undergo that are, you know, for to no avail, right? But it's a real problem when you live at the edge of medical knowledge, right? And when we don't yet know how to measure what's causing brain fog, right? What's causing um, uh, fatigue. We're starting to learn some of these things biologically through research being done now, but we don't have a one size fits all test for brain fog. Now, I'm wondering if, uh, based on what you're saying, then could we be perhaps be at the beginning of uh, another medical revolution? And I'm using that term because there was a time when people didn't understand, you know, perhaps uh, what cancer was or what other diseases that we now diabetes, um, 
et cetera, what they were, how they spread, uh, which we came to understand through medical breakthroughs. Do you think that we might be at the beginning of another phase like that where other perhaps more um, chronic, persistent uh, issues that aren't as acute are being explored? Absolutely. One of the things that I talk about in the book is that I think my reporting really suggested to me, even before the COVID-19 pandemic and the long COVID that came with it, that we're on the verge of a paradigm shift in terms of how we think about what some researchers are calling infection-associated chronic diseases. So the clear way to say this is that what we're realizing is that we used to think that, you know, you get a, you get a virus, you fight it, you either die or you live. What people are now seeing, and we've seen this in the pandemic, is that actually a lot of viruses and pathogens seem to trigger kinds of ongoing, vague, chronic problems in a lot of people. And so we're really in the middle of this, from a research perspective, exciting moment of huge strides being made in terms of our understanding that even something like the flu might be causing long flu, right? And every virus is different. Some viruses are more prone to causing these long-term symptoms. So the one thing I'll say is that as hard as it is to be in this moment where we're seeing so many people get sick with long COVID, I'm in touch all the time with researchers and the leaps and bounds they're making in understanding that this happens, why it's happening is just extraordinary. And I do feel some tiny bit of hopefulness around that area of intellectual um, gain. Well, I'm also wondering, uh, you know, for people who are still struggling with getting diagnosed correctly or even being taken seriously, what did you what did your research show you? What was the psychological impact of that for someone who knows their body? They know that they're struggling with something and yet it seems as if no one hears them. Yeah, you've really hit the crux of the problem. I used to say to um, my partner, I have two problems, really. I have the disease itself, which we're not sure what it is because it took about 10 years for me to get any kind of diagnosis. And then I have the invisibility of this disease that no one knows it, what it is. It's hard to explain to peers, to colleagues. I constantly was full of self-doubt. Is this really real? Am I, I knew it was real, but when no one around you recognizes what you're going through, it's incredibly lonely. And I used to say it was that invisibility that almost killed me, right? So in the interviews I did with um, various people for the book and in hearing from people since I published the book, the number one thing that people have struggled with is that sense of being left alone with the illness, is that sense of psychologically struggling alone without the clear-cut definition of you have cancer, here's the plan, right? Um, And I think there's two practical problems, right? There's it's hard to get to the the GP or the doctor or the specialist because you don't know to whom to turn, right? If you have these constellation of symptoms, you know, if you have an autoimmune disease, you can find yourself going to a rheumatologist. It can take a long time before that autoimmune disease shows up on your tests. So in the meantime, you're left in a kind of limbo. And then the other problem is how do you ask for accommodations at work or in your personal life, right? How do you figure out, okay, this is the life I actually can lead. And I want to lead that life to the fullest that I'm able to when, again, you don't even know what's going on and how it's going to turn out week to week. 
Well, it's also interesting that you bring up, you know, uh, the number of tests that people end up going for. Uh, we've done stories about, you know, Lyme disease and the other uh, co-infections that ticks can carry. And what we at least found was uh, a lot of doctors were telling us that if it doesn't show up on the Lyme test, it can get missed. There's they're now understanding that there are other uh, co-infections that uh, ticks can carry. And I'm wondering if that also might be your research was showing that also might be part of the issue is that if it doesn't show up on the test, well, then Absolutely. what am I supposed to do if you're a doctor? Right. So what I heard over and over from people who were living with these conditions was my doctor said nothing's wrong on my tests. I should go see a psychiatrist. Right. So there's this idea that if it's not on the test, nothing's wrong with you rather than the intellectual idea of it's not on your tests there's a lot we don't know. I'm listening to you, right? I'm listening and I'm hearing that something's wrong. So first we need to get to that place of trust, I think, between physicians and, and patients. But you're absolutely right that in, in the scope of the diseases I'm talking about, including tick-borne illness and autoimmune disease, we don't have great tests. And so one leading researcher of autoimmune disease, Dr. Noel Rose, who actually discovered one kind of autoimmune disease, told me for some of these diseases, we can't see it on a lab test until 80% of the organ that's being attacked by your immune system has already been destroyed. Right? Think about that. So by that time, as he put it, the train has already gone off the tracks. When we talk about tick-borne illness, a lot of people don't even test for what you're calling co-infections, right? which are these increasing number of infections that ticks carry along with Lyme disease. And the Lyme disease tests themselves are very contested. They don't necessarily do a great job. We can get into that's a long story, but in my own case, in my own case, it, it, I didn't test positive the first time I was tested. It took a couple more tests and then I finally did get a CDC positive. So, you know, you're in this murky area and I think it's not just doctors who aren't sure how to go forward. It's, it's people themselves, right? What do you do if you're faced with you know, if you, if you crave evidence and you want to know the plan and you don't have a clear answer, right? That's one of the reasons that people living with these conditions end up trying to do, trying out a lot of different things, right? And going down many different paths. And actually that brings me to my other point, because we also found from your book uh, that a lot of women uh, tend to be people who are diagnosed at least, um, or who suffer, I should say, from chronic Ill misunderstood chronic illnesses at the same time we also know now that a lot of medical research is based on the male body and very little attention is paid to uh or given i should say research done on how diseases affect the female body does that leave people um open or fertile ground for alternative uh type medicines and i don't want to say that all alternative medicines are bad but right. some of them, um, it leaves room open for people who may have nefarious intentions. Absolutely. I mean, and I, this was one of the hardest parts of writing the book is I, I really used in the book, it tells my own story, my lived experience in it alongside research. And I was very careful in the book to try to show all of the different things I tried because I had just run up against a wall. Right. And some of them I, you know, I don't know if I regret trying them, but I wouldn't try them now, right? So what, what, what I say in the book that I think is really important for us to understand is that when science is silent, narrative creeps in, right? 
if you're sick, you're, you're looking for an explanation. You're looking for a story, all kinds of stories come in. There's the story of self-blame, right? There's the story of somehow I did this to myself. I'm living the wrong life. And there's the story of, um, a common story of, you know, toxic modern life did this to me. And I just need to purify my body and cleanse it. Right. And sort of all of these different things. And again, because people are searching for answers, we tend to turn to anything that will help us. And I try to make the point that in a way, this is quite logical, right? If you have nothing offered to you, of course, you're going to try out many things. The other point I'll just make is that you're, you know, you're absolutely right about women are overwhelmingly the ones who live with these conditions. These are conditions characterized by dysfunction of the immune system and often the nervous system. And we know that women's immune systems and men's immune systems are very, very different. Think about the beginning of the pandemic that men were more often dying from COVID than women were, right? But women are more often the ones with long COVID, right? It has to do with differences in the immune system. Um, and we just don't have that, that information. Um, and because your immune system is very responsive to stress and food and day-to-day -day life, I think it is the case that there's a lot in alternative medicine that can be really helpful to, to people, but we don't have a really clear set of, you know, people write me and they're like, what should I do? And I'm like, I don't know, because there's no clear path, right? You have to figure it out yourself. Yeah. But of course, we, I mean, there have been so many, even throughout the pandemic, so many suggestions about cleanses right. and toxins and all these things that can, right. if you're not getting anything else, that can maybe sound like the answer. Right. And I think what's really dangerous about the, the silent science as I talk about it and this narrative creeping in is that someone who wants to sell something to a vulnerable person, you know, that person is, is an easy mark, right? And that's one of the things that we talk about. But at the same time, some of that, you know, things, some things like acupuncture in particular has been shown to help balance the autonomic nervous system. So one of the points I try to make in the book is that right now we're in a situation where individual people are left trying to figure out what should I do, what works, what doesn't. And we're all trying to make these guesses. And we really need that research and science. We absolutely need to devote a huge amount of smart funding to the right people to figure out what const what these conditions are, what is causing that fatigue, what is causing that brain fog, and really come up with some evidence-based um, answers that are whole body answers, right? That's the other thing is that in our medical system, it's very siloed into different parts of the body, mm -hmm. like a car. But you know, if you've got something wrong with your immune system, that can affect all parts of your body. If you've got something going on with your autonomic nervous system, that's going to have maybe global effects on your energy levels and all kinds of things. So we need to pivot to thinking about these more system-based illnesses and a little bit away from these siloed, I'm going to look at your kidney now. All right. So then with that though, uh, I would be remiss if we didn't talk about your book. And um, just first of all, can you uh, talk about the title that you gave the book? Because it's a unique title. And I don't think that people would associate uh, the word kingdom with what you just described as an isolating, lonely, uh, and you know, physically painful experience. Yeah. So the title was the hardest part of the book to write in some ways. It was the very last part to come together. I had a different title till late in the game. The title is The Invisible Kingdom, and the subtitle is Reimagining Chronic Illness. And it comes from the fact that I wanted to 
really make the point in this book that we think about illness as an individual and isolating experience, which it is, but that in fact, these kinds of diseases and indeed many diseases are shaped by social policy, are shaped by the community, right? And I also wanted people reading this book to realize that as lonely and isolated as they might feel, they are one of many for better and for worse. And that there is some strength in that many, right? That we, this is a call to action, this book. It is a call to say, we need to reform our medical system. We need to change the cultural narratives around illness to accommodate chronic illness that doesn't get that that you don't recover from. Right. There's a strong urge. I was just talking about um, a friend's chronic illness with a, another person. And she immediately was like, well, she might get better. Right. There's this urge to want people to get better, which is understandable, but we need to understand how much chronic illness there is. So that's, that's the title. And it's derived from a wonderful quote from Susan Sontag, the writer who talks about the fact that when we're born, we all hold a kind of dual citizenship in the kingdom of the well and in the kingdom of the sick. And so I wanted to carve out this, this invisible kingdom and hopefully say that together we can be seen. Okay. All right. No, I think that's a beautiful and wonderful explanation. Um, But I also wanted to point out that you did start this book before uh, the pandemic, which it seems, I mean, the release of it, that couldn't be a more perfect time, but uh, (laughs) you started before the pandemic actually happened. What was your reaction when you first heard about COVID-19? And then of course, I think so many of us will never forget that uh, press conference where the World Health Organization said, yeah, this is a pandemic. Yeah. So I was deep deep in writing this book. I was deep in researching and talking to a lot of virologists and infectious disease um, researchers. And so I kind of knew about COVID-19 early on. I was laughing the other day because I was thinking about the fact that I had been so anxious that a pandemic was coming. You know, basically it was very clear to me early that a pandemic was coming. And it was this period where I kept saying I was Cassandra, right? I was the chicken little saying, look, the sky's falling. My friends were like, what are you talking about? Um, So I was not happy to be right, basically. But I would say that immediately, uh, partly again, because of the researchers I was talking to, I was really concerned that this virus was going to trigger a kind of shadow pandemic alongside the acute pandemic, um, the contours of which we would only see later. And that is to say, I immediately suspected we were going to find out this virus triggered a lot of long-term illness that would be hard to treat and hard to define in a significant cohort of people. And that's what really kept me up at night initially was I, you know, in addition to the the tragedy we were seeing around us, that there was a kind of unfolding second tragedy coming. And so, you know, it's funny, I, um, the book took a year longer to write than, than it would have. I was almost done. But I immediately stopped and thought, I absolutely have to start reporting on and accounting for any kind of chronic illness that is triggered by this virus. And I pretty early was lurking on message boards and on Facebook and reading people starting to say, God, I got COVID six weeks ago and I'm still not better. Here's what's going on. My heart is racing. I have strange fatigue. I have this, that, and the other. And I ended up writing a a long article for the Atlantic magazine about one of the early articles on long COVID and just reporting that part of the book out and thinking about how long COVID fit into and might change the landscape took another whole year to, to do, but it felt really important. Yeah. 
Do you think that uh, with the presence of long COVID and something that's touching just so many American lives, that this uh, changes the way the public views uh, chronic illness or, you know, what for some people could develop into, you know, just a chronic disability? Yeah, I think unfortunately long COVID has been politicized in the same ways that COVID has been. That said, we are seeing that the scope of the problem is unignorable, right? And so is the fact that many of the people who are early long COVID, sort of first wave long COVID, long haulers, they call them, are medical professionals, right? Because they were on the front lines and they got COVID in that first wave. And so I, I do think that that has from the reporting I've done, a lot of medical professionals are telling me, wow, you know, I did not understand before my patients who were coming in with these conditions. I, I just kind of thought they should buck up. I mean, one even said that to me. Um, and she said, now I get it, you know, like every day is a struggle. So I, I think we're, you know, the optimistic side of the coin is we have this awareness that has never been trained on these diseases before. We are still fighting, I think, the desire to look away, right? It's really scary to think that at any moment you could end up with a chronic illness that could debilitate you. And because these diseases are invisible and hard to see, unlike say polio triggering paralysis in a limp, it's easier to look away and people wanna look away. So I think as a nation, we do have to ask ourselves what outcome we want here. We are still all at risk from long COVID, even if we're vaccinated, infection is running rampant. Um, once you have long COVID, you may be able to work less. There was a big study that um, just came out showing that the work full-time people are leaving the full-time workforce because of long COVID. So I, I think there's a lot of work that we have to do as a society, not only to worry about our own personal risk of long COVID, but to say, what do we need to do to research this problem and treat this problem and start to look at it, right? Because it's by looking at it that it will actually diminish, right? Looking away from it will do nothing. It's just going to make more tragedy happen. Well, you kind of touched on my final question because we've got about a minute left, but I'm wondering what is it that, you know, not medical professionals, but everyday people, friends, family, how do you support somebody who's struggling with uh, a chronic illness if you haven't experienced it and you don't quite understand what they're dealing with? Yeah, I think on the intimate interpersonal level, the number one thing is to try to offer validation and recognition and not to try to reassure or solve the problem. We all want to reassure our loved ones. Um, but I think when you're grappling with the reality of a long-term condition, you don't want reassurance. You just want someone to look at you and say, wow, I really see that you're struggling today. A friend of mine did that once and it meant so much to me. On a political level, we need to, you know, let our politicians know that we care about this issue. And the, the, by that, I mean the, the crisis of long COVID and that we see that this is a kind of dynamic problem of the age is the rise of these kinds of diseases, including autoimmune disease, which is on the rise. And we need to say we need answers and we need funding. All right. Well, the book is The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness. Megan O'Rourke, thank you so much for joining us and for writing a book that seems like it could not have been more perfect for this moment we collectively find ourselves in. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely.